The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Yes, Psalm 48, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. The city of the great king, God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. Selah. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go about, go all about her. Count her towers, mark her well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide, even to death. I'm not going to read the passage today because it's... Uh, uh, long, and it's all pretty much contained in two short sections, and so we're just going to go straight into the sermon, but uh, it's uh, Exodus 38, verses 9 through 31. It's entitled, The Always Evident Lord. Now, as with uh, the previous few passages, the majority of the verses today have been covered almost exactly in earlier sermons, and so once again, we will follow a different path as we uh, approach these already familiar words. I titled this the always evident Lord because the courtyard was visible to any who passed by. Even from the outside and without peering into the courtyard itself, a person could make many deductions about what went on inside the sanctuary by simply sitting outside and watching the daily activities. If they were astute enough, they might even be able to put together more than initially meets the eye. The larger portion of those who were in Israel completely missed the always evident Lord, Jesus. He was there among them. Everything that he did was in fulfillment of the very words of Scripture that they listened to each Sabbath day. And his words proclaimed ever so clearly who he was. And yet they missed him. They are still missing him to this day. And yet there are innumerable multitudes who have taken the time to open their eyes, compare the words of Scripture which have been presented to them about Jesus find him and even come to know him in such a detailed way that they understand him better than the Jews understood the symbolism of their own temple. After all, if one understands the person, they should be able to understand what the shadows which only pointed to him mean. Today we're going to take a trip down the streets of Israel to the place where the sanctuary of the Lord stood. When there, 
We will contemplate its outer courts and what occurred there to see if we can find out anything about the God who resided there. If we can learn something about him, then we might be able to find out how to approach him. Our text verse comes from Job chapter 23. It's the third verse. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Job wanted to know where he might find the Lord. A person walking along the streets in Israel might be curious about the edifice he passed by where the Lord God of Israel dwelt. If so, he might stop and ask some questions about the unusual edifice. From there, he might decide to stay a while and observe the goings-on at that special place. If so, he might come across the answer to the dilemma that Job faced. If we know where he is, we might be able to determine how to come to his seat. For us, the place has been described in detail, the way there has been explained, and the means by which we can take that way there is fully revealed. This is the infinite value of the Holy Bible. It explains where the infinite God resides. It explains the bridge between finite us and infinite him, and it explains the means by which that bridge is made available. Further, the duration of our journey to know him fully will be an infinite one. We have this treasure right next to us and available to us. It is finite in size, and yet its value and its worth are infinite, such as the marvel and the wonder of this superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Only two thoughts for you today. The first is the always evident Lord. It's verses 9 through 20. Verse 9, then he made the court on the south side. The hangings of the court were of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long. There were 20 pillars for them with 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. On the north side, the hangings were 100 cubits long with 20 pillars and their 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. And on the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits with 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. For the east side of the hangings were 50 cubits. The hangings of one side of the gate were 15 cubits long with their three pillars and their three sockets. And the same for the other side of the court gate on this side and that were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court all around were of fine woven linen. The sockets for the pillars were bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver and the overlay of their capitals was silver, and all the pillars of the court had bands of silver. The screen for the gate of the court was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of fine woven linen. The length was 20 cubits, and the height along its width was five cubits, corresponding to the hangings of the court. Then there were four pillars with their four sockets of bronze. Their hooks were silver, and the overlay of their capitals and their bands was silver. All the pegs of the tabernacle and the court all around were bronze. The courtyard of the sanctuary was the part which was evident to the people. From outside, people knew that there was a structure which had a set and specific purpose. It would be unique, and thus it would bring the curious to wonder about it. And certainly, this is the intent of what we know it pictures. A simple question asked by anyone would be um, as to what its purpose was. And a simple answer was all that was needed to explain its overall purpose. Excuse me, sir. What kind of dwelling is this? It is the dwelling of the God of Israel, the true God. What you see is only the outer courtyard, and above the outer court hangings, you can see the top of the tent where he dwells. 
This exterior view would be available to both Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free man. Any who were curious about what they saw needed only to ask. And if they were shy, they could make logical deductions about what it was and what its purpose was. But it is speculated that the outer hangings themselves would allow a little bit more to be seen. The word which describes the hangings indicates, yes, a hanging, but also a sling for slinging stones, as if the hangings were loosely woven. That doesn't tell us very much, but the Greek translation of it indicates a sail. And because of this, it is believed by some scholars to be a fabric which was woven in such a way that the inside of the court could be seen through it. And so, we have here an edifice which would attract attention to itself, but not in an ostentation ma ostentatious manner. It would then, at times, make those outside curious enough to see more. They would long to peer in and to see what was so special about this God of Israel. Even from the outside, it would be evident that there was order and harmony here. There would be a great deal of diversity. From the outside, without even peering in, there would be various materials evident to the eye. White fabric, bronze bases, poles of metal or wood, silver hooks, pillars and bands, and the uh, front screen would have a beautiful mixture of colors. Surely the person curious about the exterior would want to know more about the interior. And so they might get closer in in order to let their peering eyes gaze through the outer hangings and into the courtyard itself. What they would see then is the extent of the always evident Lord. Other things would be concealed, but everything facing out into the courtyard would be evident. And this is what the world around us pictures still. There is a world filled with people who know nothing about the true God as he has specifically revealed himself. They go about life unknowing and therefore normally uncaring. It isn't that they don't necessarily care about the things of God, but one cannot truly care about something that they have no comprehension of. You certainly don't care a thing about the planet Gypsar, which is in the Tolovian galaxy, because until right now you've never heard of it. But if you knew of the marvelous treasures that were there, you would read all about it. Until someone sees the sanctuary, they can never really care about what the sanctuary pictures, nor would they care about the God who resides in it. God to them is simply a God of whatever their traditions, culture, or their own minds have established. And so when the Lord designed the tabernacle, he did it in such a way that any passerby would be curious, hopefully even tantalized to know more about him. As a sanctuary, in every single detail pictures Jesus Christ, as we well know, then it must be comparable to how Christ is evident to the world today. There is an edifice, there are priests coming in and going out, and there are also common people coming in and going. Along with the entries and exits of the people, there would be animals being brought in alive and none exiting alive. Any person sitting for a spell and watching the activity would be able to make conclusions about what they were seeing. The people go in with a lamb. There is the sound of the lamb bleeding, which is suddenly interrupted by the sound of the death of the animal. There is a temporary lull in what one could see, and then there, above the courtyard, smoke is rising. The smoke smells like the fragrant burning of a lamb. Aha, a sacrifice, right there at the very front of the courtyard. Without even looking through the hangings, but just simply sitting outside, one could learn a lot about the always evident Christ. We can even back up for a moment. Today, just within the past hour, three groups of people came to the sanctuary at the same time. A priest came out to meet them and they chatted. 
After that, he bent over and he inspected each animal very carefully. One of them was turned away. It was evident, even from where, where we're sitting right now, that it had a defect. Though the words were spoken in a different language, one not understood, it was unmistakable that the animal was rejected because it was marred. Only the very best was to be offered to this God of Israel. You see how easy it is? Just sit back a while and watch, and you'll learn so very much. And what about the people? Will the people tell us anything as they come and go? Well, they're certainly a very, very rich man. Look at all those fancy clothes, and yet he is the one whose animal was turned away as unacceptable. But that person to his right must be the poorest person ever seen. He and his family are literally in rags, and yet they have saved all that they had in order to bring a lamb. And it is the most precious lamb that I have ever seen. They must have paid extra for the chance to have this lamb. Or if they raised it themselves, they were the most blessed of all. Surely they are giving of their very, very best in order to be a pleasant and pleasing offering to this God of Israel. I can't even look at the lamb without the greatest sense of awe and wonder. God, if there truly is a God, must have taken the highest delight in fashioning this lamb so innocent and so pure. And yet these people have decided that offering the lamb back to him is more important than anything else. I can tell that money is not the issue here with this God. The richest man that I have ever seen, that I've ever laid my eyes on, had his offering rejected. And the poorest bunch of hillbillies that I've ever seen have had theirs accepted, and even gladly. The high priest himself marveled at the perfection of this precious lamb. No, it's not about money at all. It is something much, much more valuable. It is about faith. One family demonstrated faith in the provision of the Lord, even in their poverty, and the other demonstrated a complete lack of faith, trusting in his own status before the God of Israel. One was accepted, the other was rejected. This God, and the rights given to honor him, is a God of any and all who come to him by faith. I know this because the third family came, and they were well-to-do. They drove up on high-performance donkeys with their servants and their offerings in tow, and yet they have been accepted. Their offerings were without blemish, and they were offered with a sense of humility, even gratitude, for the honor of serving this God of Israel. They didn't trust in their own wealth. They demonstrated faith. I am indeed impressed with what I have seen. Let me tarry here and ponder a little bit more. I'm truly curious about this God of Israel. He appears different than all of the rest. The other temples that I've passed by didn't care at all about the type of offering as long as there was a lot of money to go into the back pocket of the priest. A wink, a nod, the passing of some silver, and all was settled. And that brings me to the silver. Even from outside, I can see that there are items of silver along the border of the courtyard. It is that upon which the hangings are actually hung. Other than the screen at the front, the hangings are all the finest white. In fact, while sitting here, one was taken down because it had a mar on it. Only the purest white, like snow, even purity itself is seen. And that purity was hung from silver. It reminds me of the silver being passed from the people to the priest at the other temples. But this silver is pure and polished. There was nothing underhanded or dirty here. And so if this silver be silver, the purpose of it remains the same. Money was passed and a deal was made. Redemption. The silver pictures a purchase and thus an act of redemption. 
it is all so clear. The purity of the hangings is hung upon the silver of redemption. I like this God, this God of Israel. There's order and harmony here. And I can see sitting here pondering these marvelous courts of the house of the Lord God of Israel that the posts are set in bronze. If the other materials have meaning, this must also. Bronze, it is hardy. It has a specific color because of the copper in it, which other metals lack except gold itself. It is a very enduring metal. It is used as the base of the poles. In fact, it is used for the pegs as well. It is the foundation of everything else that I can see. I've already seen that there is judgment going on inside of the court. The sudden termination of the bleeding of the lambs and then the rising of the smoke tells me this. It is the first thing that happens just inside entry to the sanctuary. It is the basis for everything else that occurs, just as the bronze is the base of everything I see from out here. Judgment. Simply by sitting outside, I can tell that the bronze signifies judgment. Yes, there is order and there is harmony here. There is wisdom on display. This sanctuary has intent and it has purpose. It has logic in all of its parts. Thus, the God inside that inner tent is different than all others. I have passed through many lands and seen many gods. I've seen countless offerings, including human sacrifice, babies for some gods, and martyrs of war for others. There's no wisdom there. There's no logic there. There's no harmony. There's only chaos and death. But this sanctuary is different. I will tarry a little bit longer. Now comes another thought to my mind. This courtyard that I'm looking at is facing east and west. The entrance is east so that those who enter to face the place of their God will be facing west. Isn't that curious? The sun rises in the east. One might think that this sanctuary would be turned the other way around for the people to face the rising sun. Instead, they have the sun to their backs, rejecting it as any type of God. Their eyes look west. It reminds me of an ancient story, one where there was a land of exile to the east, but a place of delight to the west. It is an ancient story, but it is in my memory. These people are looking west, maybe in hopes of the land of delight. I need to learn more about this God who dwells to the west. This makes me think about another part of the sanctuary. If their God resides in the west, then they are coming from the east, out of the place of exile that I heard about. You might think that the whole east end would be opened wide then, so that any and all who wanted to could just flood in. But this isn't the case. Instead, there is a screen at the entrance. There is a simple and small way to gain access into the courtyard. Think of it. The whole world is rushing along, busily seeking out God in whatever manner they choose. The path is wide to fit all of those people. But if this God that these people serve is the true God, then what a narrow means of gaining access into his presence. One must be heading west. They have to go through just the right door at just the right location. They must come with an offering, and that offering is rejected if it isn't pure and spotless and perfect. If these expectations are met, then they come up to this screen, and it's limited means of access. And what a marvelous screen. It is made of the richest of colors, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, which are intricately woven. It is a masterpiece of beauty. I asked one of the people about the colors. He happened to speak my language, and he told me that the blue stands for their law, the law of their God. The purple speaks of royalty. Their God is their king. 
As their king, he exercises the power of the king, including upholding the law, executing war, and judging. These are a combination of blue and red, which merge into purple. And the red? How deep it is. It is the finest scarlet color that I have ever seen. He told me that the red speaks of shed blood. But then he curiously said that the shed blood is what grants life. This is the strangest thing I can imagine. I need to learn more about this God who gives life from death. These things are so curious, and yet they seem so reasonable at the same time. And so I'm tempted to get closer now and to peer through the hangings to see inside the court a little bit better. As I peek in, it is just as I expected. I can see an altar standing before the entrance west of the screen. It is bronze too. Judgment. I've already figured out what the bronze stands for, and why would I expect this to be any different? I'll sit here quietly and see what happens. Maybe I'm right. Sure enough, the altar is where there's a lot of activity going on. The people bring in their animals, hands are placed on their heads, words are uttered, and the animal is sacrificed. Its blood is collected and it's handled by the priests. Is that what it means, that the shed blood is what grants life? Is there some sort of transfer from this innocent animal to the people and from the people to the animal? That must be what the man meant. The people come in carrying a burden, the burden is transferred to the innocent animal, and the people's burden is lifted. It all makes sense. I've seen this type of thing in other temples, but it never seems so effective. I don't know how I know it, but I just know it. Here, there is a sense of order and meticulous care that I can tell that what they are doing makes perfect sense. It is like a dream coming true what is happening here. The only other thing I see outside of the main tent area within the courtyard is a wash basin. It is bronze too. Judgment. The priests go to wash their hands and their feet. And now isn't that curious? They are priests. So they must have been ordained as priests. And yet they need to go to this basin and to clean themselves as if they're defiled. How can a priest be defiled? They must pick it up as they live their regular lives. They don't wash their whole body though. They just wash their hands and their feet. So if they are priests who are acceptable to their God, and yet they're defiled, then their defilement must come as they walk with their feet and work with their hands. I think I understand this. Even those cleansed by God still need to continuously purify themselves in order to be acceptable to perform their priestly duties. This God that they worship is so holy that even his priests must continuously be purified. The only word that I can use to describe this is that they sanctify themselves. It's funny. They are sanctified, and yet they need to be sanctified. I will ponder this as I browse a little bit more. Well, isn't that interesting? It sure seems odd to me that this courtyard doesn't have any other furniture. There are no chairs for the priests to sit at. There's no place for them to lie down. They just keep on working, one sacrifice after another. And yet the people seem content and pleased with how things are going. I need to find out why. And there is just the guy to ask. He's an old man with a long beard and many years of life scarred into the wrinkles on his face. He must have been coming to the sanctuary a long, long time. If anyone knows the scoop, it must be him. And bonus, no translator is needed. He also speaks my language. It seems that this God of theirs has every detail figured out in advance just for me. In asking him what all of this meant, he stretched out his ancient eyes and he looked back towards the 
tent, which is inside the courtyard. He thought about it, and then he spoke. He said, our people worship God, the God, the one true God. He gave us his law, and we were asked to live by it. A covenant was cut, and we were accepted as his people. In the law, there are penalties for sin, but there is also forgiveness from sin, as provided by the law. We come here to sacrifice in accordance with the law, and our sin is forgiven. And yet, we come here a lot. Year after year, we are reminded of our sin, and so we know that our sins are forgiven, but our sin is not taken away. If it was, we wouldn't have to come back time and time and time again. But in our law are included ancient stories of our history, even to the very beginning of time itself. Right at the beginning, we were told of one who would come, who would destroy the evil one who brought sin into our lives. Until he comes, we present ourselves at this sanctuary to do what he will someday take care of for us. When he does this, I mean when he destroys the power of the one who has brought evil into our lives, we won't have to come back here year after year. Instead, not only will our sins be forgiven, but our sin will be taken away. This is what we are waiting for. This sanctuary is telling us a story. Each pillar and each color tells a part of it. The altar and the screen tell us a part of the story. I've contemplated this sanctuary for the past 87 years of my life, and each time I think on it, the story becomes a little bit clearer to me. There are parts of this sanctuary that no one is allowed to see, except the priests, of course, and there is one part that only the high priest may see, and he can only see it once a year. And when he goes in, he must bring the blood of a sacrifice made for himself before he enters. He also takes in incense to obscure his vision of the most holy objects that are there. This tells us a story, too. All of this is temporary, but all of this is necessary. We, as a people, are learning a most important lesson if we will but learn. We're a stiff-necked group. Our God has told us as much, and I fear that terrible times lay ahead. But we still hold out for the promise of this one that we call Messiah. He will make all things new. The old man stopped there, and he said, this is the answer to your question. Now, I have a question for you. Life is precious, and it passes by all too quickly. There is hope in the God of Israel. Would you like to come and rest in the shadow of his wings? I pondered his question. I've seen enough. I've seen the logical construction of this sanctuary. I've counted its poles and its hangings. I've noted its sizes and dimensions. I've contemplated its materials and its colors. I understand the sacrifices, and I believe that they are effective in making the people acceptable to their God, the God. I've seen so many things, and yet I have not even stepped inside. This is what I want to do next. Yes, sir, I believe that I would. I would like to come and dwell among your people, and I want to share in what your God offers. I will do what is required to become a part of your people, the people of the God of Israel. Now, obviously, this has just been a story, but it's a reasonable story. The courtyard of the sanctuary was what anyone who passed by could see. It was intended to keep the people out, but it was also designed to let the people in. For those who were of Israel, they could come inside the courts. For those who were not of Israel, they could still look in through the hangings in order to see and to understand. And what was it that both Israel and the Gentiles was to understand? 
It was that the God who resided within the tent, which was within the hangings of the courtyard, was the same God who had done so much for Israel. He had done the miraculous in the past, and he had made promises for the future as well. The courtyard was the always evident Lord. One could understand so much about him by just contemplating what their eyes could see. He is loving. He has provided a way of fellowshipping with his people. He is just. The people's sins require judgment. He is merciful. He provided forgiveness through a substitute. He is compassionate. He allowed the forgiveness of sins many, many times. He is righteous. His forgiveness was not arbitrary, nor was it withheld when it was petitioned as he laid out for his people. He is holy. The substitute could have no blemish, but rather it needed to be perfect. The lesson of the courtyard is the lesson of our lives in the Lord. The people of the world may only see the true God through our lives. And so we are to be the always evident Lord to them. Not that we are the Lord, but that we are the ones to make the Lord known to others. If we, you or I, are all that some people will ever see in order to know Christ, will we be a suitable example for this to happen? Are we willing to put ourselves on display so that people will say, I want to know more about what is going on inside that courtyard? Will they want to come through the screen, come to the altar and place their hands on the lamb and confess their sins over him? Each aspect of the courtyard is an aspect which pertains to you. The white hangings are the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. The bronze is the judgment which was rendered upon Christ for you. The silver is the redemption upon which your righteousness was purchased. We can go through every detail of this courtyard and apply what the always evident Lord has done for you. In turn, you should make yourself a shining example of this always evident Lord for others to see and to desire. Until they're justified, they cannot be sanctified, and until they are sanctified, they will never, never be glorified. The access to the throne of God is found in one place for all people, and you may be the only one to bring that knowledge to some of them. What a sobering thought. You are on a journey heading west, back to the land of delight. Be sure that you bring along as many people as you can in the process. Should you fail, their destiny will be a far, far different one. As I noted, there is no chair and no sofa in that courtyard. There's no bed either. The priests worked and they never sat down. You too need to spend your time wisely working out your presentation of the always evident Lord so that when someone asks you about him, you will be ready with a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord! How marvelous are your courts which do surround! And how beautiful is your gate! It pulls my heart toward the marvelous place there on the dry ground. I long to enter into the place where you dwell and to smell the burning of the sacrifice. Accept my offering, O Lord, and be pleased to tell that we are again in fellowship, so sweet and so nice. How lovely is your dwelling place, my God. I long to stay here with you for eternal days and to gaze upon the beauty of my Lord and with my soul forever to sing your praise. Our second thought today is the inventory. It won't be as fun and it won't make me cry as much as the past verses. It's verses 21 through 31. You know, I try to preach these sermons out loud. I do it eight times in a row so that I don't have to bawl like a baby in front of you and I still can't help it. How desperately I love the Lord and what he's done for us. Verse 21, 
This is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony. These words are debated. Is this speaking of the inventory of the things already mentioned or the metals which will next be numbered? What is probably correct is that it brings us all the way back to the beginning of chapter 35, and it carries us all the way until verse 20, which we just finished of this chapter. Further, it will also include the metals when they are mentioned. Everything that was offered, collected, and constructed was detailed and described. Even if the exact amount of the materials was not noted, such as how much acacia wood was used, the materials were accounted for in the construction of the items. In this verse, it places everything under the umbrella of Hamishkan, Mishkan Ha'edut, the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony. The reason for this is that the entire sanctuary, including the tent and the courtyard, was designed and constructed as extensions of the tabernacle itself. And the tabernacle was erected specifically for the purpose of enclosing the two stone tablets of Ha'edut, or the testimony. It is the testimony against sin, which is contained within the ark and upon which sat the mercy seat. Everything else was designed for that one specific purpose, the law, to be embodied by Christ and to be covered by his shed blood. All of what we're seeing is because of that. Verse 21 continues, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. This counting of the materials was according to Moses' command, and it was intended to be as a service of the Levites. The word for in this translation is not in the Hebrew, and it gives a faulty sense of what is said. The service was not for them. It was administered by them at the direction of Ithamar, the youngest son of Aaron. Now, it's curious that the youngest would be selected, but maybe, maybe the meaning of his name gives us a clue as to why he was chosen. The name Ithamar means island of palms or land of palms. The Tamar or palm tree is a symbol of uprightness or righteousness. Thus, the Levites are considered as an island of upright people who are administering a service before the Lord. And curiously, we got a new dog yesterday and it happens to be named Tamar. So there you go, a little squiggle for your brain that we have a, a connection to this sermon all in the same week. Verse 22, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hor, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and a graver and designer, a weaver of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and a fine linen. The initial call of Bezalel and Aholiab was made in Exodus chapter 31. The men, their work, and even their names were chosen specifically for us to see pictures of Christ. If you skip that sermon, you are directed to go home and to watch it. Verse 24, all the gold that was used in all the work of the holy place, that is the gold of the offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The gold mentioned here was not, as this translation says, for the holy place. That's not a correct translation. Rather, it was for the sanctuary. The gold was used in the holy place, in the most holy place, and on the pillars which supported the screen entrance into the tabernacle. The total amount of gold is estimated to equal out to 4,245 troy pounds. I figured it out on December 7th, which was D-Day, by the way. With modern gold prices, it comes out to 62543198 dollars and... 10 cents. Although it is an exceptional amount, it is not so much as to be inconceivable. 
If there were two million people who left Egypt and each family requested articles of gold from their neighbor, as the Bible says, this would only amount to a portion of what was actually carried out. Verse 25, and the silver from those who were numbered of the congregation was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, a becca for each man that is half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. For everyone included in the numbering from 20 years old and above for 603,550 men. And from the hundred talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, 100 sockets from the hundred talents, one talent for each socket. Then from the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars, overlaid their capitals and made bands for them. Although this is new information in the Bible, we already have reviewed it in a previous sermon, having gone forward to this passage in order to understand where the silver from the sockets, hooks, bands, and overlay came from. That sermon was detailed in Exodus 26, verses 15 through 30. If you missed that, you are directed to go home, pull it up on YouTube. If you watch it during dinner, order pizza or something else that you can eat by hand so you don't miss any of the details, all right? As a squiggle for your brain, this is the second and last time that the Becca is mentioned in the Bible. The first was in Genesis 24, verse 22. The Becca comes from the word Baka, which means to cleave or to split. Hence, a Becca is a split or a half shekel. Verse 26 is also an important number concerning those who are considered as adult males in Israel at this time. The age is 20 and above and there are 603,550 men. This is in accord with the number which was given in Exodus chapter 12, and it therefore allows a close reckoning of how many people actually departed from Egypt. The number is not exact, but it is close enough to estimate the total population who came out. That would be somewhere around 2 million people. Mm -hmm. The total amount of silver today would equal about 14,602 troy pounds, which equals as of 7 December 2016, $3,457,169.52. Verse 29, the offering of bronze was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. And with it, he made the sockets for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the bronze altar, the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils for the altar. The sockets for the court all around, the bases for the court gate, all the pegs of, for the tabernacle, and all the pegs for the court all around. The use of the brass and what it pictures concerning the work of Christ was previously noted in our sermons. If you missed them, and there are several, what you need to do is you need to just start all over with the Tabernacle series and watch every single sermon. Be sure to take notes, as I will be giving a written exam before you get your certificate of completion. The total amount of bronze today would equal about 10,277 troy pounds. In all, the need for every detail set out by the Lord was met by the giving of the people, and all of it was voluntary with the exception of the ransom money taken during the numbering of the people. The Lord had a plan, the minutest details of which are being overseen by him, and it is being worked out moment by moment in the stream of time. Our Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of every one of these types and shadows which he has brought to the pages of his word. He is there for us to see and to understand be pleased as you pick up this precious treasure each day to look for him there. In the end, we are on a journey back to the arms of our Heavenly Father. Christ is the path, and Jesus 
is there at the finish line, at the end of that path. Let us fix our eyes on him and let us not waver in our devotion to him. Let us be found pleasing in the sight of the Lord as we look for him in his superior word. Our closing verse today is from Psalm 97, 96, I'm sorry. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Next week, we have Exodus 39. It's verses 1 through 43. We're going to do the entire chapter. It'll just be the poem because the poem is so long. Okay, that's not true, but uh, it, it'll be a long poem. Now, when I give you the title, please don't hammer haw, haw or hem. It's entitled, And Moses Blessed Them. That'll be our 103rd Exodus sermon. And I will tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called The Courtyard and the Inventory. Then he made the court on the south side. The hangings of the court, according to the word, were of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long as specified by the Lord. There were 20 pillars for them with 20 bronze sockets also, the hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver, as we know. On the north side, the hangings were 100 cubits long, as was said, with 20 pillars and their 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver, as the instructions read. And on the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits, as we are told, with 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver, not of gold. For the east side of the hangings were 50 cubits, the hangings of one side of the gate were 15 cubits long, with their three pillars and their three sockets, as the record does state. And the same for the other side of the court gate, on this side and that were hangings of cubits 15, with their three pillars and their three sockets, Bezalel's adherence to the details here is seen. All the hangings of the court all around were of fine woven linen, surely its appearance did astound. The sockets for the pillars were bronze, the hooks of the pillars and the bands were silver also. And the overlay of the capitals was silver, and the pillars of the court had bands of silver, as we know. The screen for the gate of the court was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen. It was accomplished just as the Lord had said. The length was twenty cubits, and the height along its width was cubits five, corresponding to the hangings of the court. For perfection, Bezalel did strive. And there were four pillars, with their four sockets of bronze, too. Their hooks were silver, and the overlay of their capitals and their bands was silver through and through. All the pegs of the tabernacle and of the court all around were bronze. Every detail Bezalel did minutely tackle. This inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, was counted according to the commandment of Moses, you see, for the service of the Levites from the first to the least by the hand of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hor, of the tribe of Judah, so we know, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses, and according to the detailed instructions also. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer was he, a weaver of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and a fine linen, working at his works so carefully. All the gold that was used in the work of the holy place, that is, the gold of the offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, such was the proffering. 
and the silver from those who were numbered of the congregation was 100 talents, so we see, and 1,775 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca for each man, that is, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for every one included in the numbering from 20 years old and above counted accordingly. For 603,550 men, the number was taken at Sinai there and then. And from the hundred talents of silver were cast sockets of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, one hundred sockets from the hundred talents, one talent for each socket did entail. Then from the 1775 shekels he made hooks for the pillars, this he did do, overlaid their capitals and made them bands for them too. The offering of the bronze was talents seventy and two thousand four hundred shekels accordingly. And with it he made the sockets for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, so he made the bronze altar, the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils for the altar, plying in his trade. The sockets for the court all around, the bases for the court gate, bases which did abound, all the pegs for the tabernacle, and the pegs for the court all around. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful detail we see. Every word is precious for us to ponder, and all of it points to Jesus ever so marvelously. Thank you for sharing with us such splendid wonder. Hear our thanks as we praise you for all of our days. Forever and ever we shall sing to you with joyous praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Lord, Heavenly Father, gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, thank you for the lessons that we learned from Scripture, the lessons that tell us about what you did for us when you stepped out of eternity and united with human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for that marvelous, marvelous thing and how we can weave words together to stir our emotions and to uh, uh, help us to think on you in a different way. But more than anything, thank you for what actually occurred when he hung on the cross, cross of Calvary for our sins. He took away the sin of the world by simple act of faith. All we need to do is just simply reach out and receive that, and we will be with you for all of eternity. What an honor, what a pleasure, what a glory to ponder. Lord, you know I was talking to you before we started this morning. I can't get my mind around it that you would do this for us. I can't even comprehend that you would do this, and yet your word reveals it to us, and your word is true. I have no doubt of the truth, the complete accuracy of your Bible. Thank you for it, the surety that we possess because of it, and thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And Lord, a special prayer for Linda, who's doing a little bit of limping today. We pray that she will be strengthened in her uh, leg and that she'll get over whatever is uh, not right with her right now. Lord, we thank you for all of the uh, chance to come here each, each week throughout the year and to give you the praise that you're due. And we fail at that, don't we? We don't give you nearly what you're due, but you are worthy of it. Forgive us of our, our failings and just help us to go forward praising you as much as we can for the glory that you have displayed to us in the person of Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. All we do is add in a prayer that Jesus would have said over those things, but we don't add to it other than that. For I received from the Lord that which the, was delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu v'lech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay that in the bed. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread, which is tasteless and almost almost uh, stale, it seems. But that's what Jesus came. He came without any form or comeliness, so that when people would see him, they would want something other than the flash and the glamour. Arnold Schwarzenegger is falling apart. Beautiful women of the past have gone the way of, of the world. Fade, glory fades, and uh, beauty is but for a moment. But Jesus, who came as just a normal person without any form or comeliness, endures forever. His glory radiates out more than the brightest suns, more than the brightest lights of all of the universe. Thank you that we can partake of this bread and think of the lesson in that, that we're to follow you and nothing else, to set aside the lusts and the, uh, the temporary things of this world and to pursue you first. Thank you for that. And we do praise you, and we do expect that he will be coming soon. We pray that it's so. Give us patience to endure through this life until he does come for us, be it through death or be it through the rapture. What a glorious day either will be when we stand in your presence. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do it in his exalted name. Amen. 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 Amen.